If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Hello there, and we are back with another of the continuing episodes of the Leading Learning Podcast. And as we head into this episode, we wanted to once again remind you about an event that we have coming up in May, specifically Learning Technology Design, or LTD, which is a learning experience designed specifically for professionals in the business of continuing education and professional development. And the goal of the event is to help attendees find new and better ways to engage learners and create lasting impact through the effective use of technology. If you want to be sure your organization is not getting left behind and more importantly if you want to connect with a peer community that can support you as you move forward this is the event for you it'll be may 18th and 19th in arlington virginia and you can find out more at ltd.leadinglearning.com we also wanted to take just a minute to thank web courseworks makers of the course stage lms for being a sponsor of leading learning webinars which is part of that package makes them a sponsor of this podcast episode you can find out more about upcoming leading learning webinars at www.tagoras.com forward slash webinars and about web courseworks at www.webcourseworks.com so now let's get on to the actual substance of this episode of the podcast. And Salisa, I know you had the chance to catch up with Claire Rosso of AICPA, the American Institute of CPAs. That's right, I did. And um, we spent a good deal of our time talking about their Future of Learning uh, initiative. This is a a task force that the AICPA convened to really look at uh, all the things that are uh, were converging and are still are converging to change the learning landscape. You know, so the impact of technology, the uh, um, the lower barriers to entry for competitors, and obviously the CPA um, market is a highly competitive uh, area. And so they brought together this task force to really just assess the situation and then. Um, determine you know what should we be doing with education and learning as as part of that and so it's a really neat um, effort I think both in terms of what they concluded for um, the CPA field which I think will apply more broadly since so many other people are seeing the impacts of of technology and and that um, increased competition and then too I think just this idea of convening a task force and you know really looking at um, you know a profession or industry-wide perspective is something that I think a lot of um, our listeners might find interesting. And you mentioned it already, but uh, you know the CPA field or, or continuing professional education, which they have to earn, that is a very competitive market. Uh, a lot that's very dynamic there, and I know that they've wrestled with the whole issue of you know compliance. CPAs have to have a certain amount of credit that they earn over a period of time, versus uh, I think they phrase it as competency or they just do. You know, yeah. So just in, investing in making yourself better, making the profession better through the learning that you're doing, and I think that's a, that's a very interesting take on things. I know Claire has a lot that's interesting to say about that so let's get on with the interview I'm Salisa Steele and this is the leading learning podcast today I'm joined by Claire Rosso Claire is vice president 
of Member Learning and Competency at the American Institute of CPAs, and as such, she's responsible for growing existing AICPA product lines and identifying and creating new product lines. She leads uh, the publications, conferences, web events, and professional development teams at the AICPA and works closely with the organization's communications, marketing, strategy, people, and innovation teams. So Claire, first, thank you for carving out time to talk. And, and second, you know, I said a little bit about your role at the AICPA, but I want to give you to, a chance to say a bit more about the American Institute of CPAs and, and if you wish some more about yourself and your role there. All right. Thank you, first of all, for having me today. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about one of my favorite topics. Um, just to give you a little background on the AICPA, we are the world's largest member association representing the accounting profession. We have more than 400,000 members in 144 countries, and they work in really across a wide cross-section of business and industry, public practice, government, education, and consulting. What the AICPA does, in addition to being a professional association, we set ethical standards for the profession and U.S. auditing standards for private companies, not-for-profit organizations, federal, state, and local government. We also develop the uniform CPA exam and offer specialty credentials for CPAs who concentrate on personal financial planning, forensic accounting, business valuation, and information management and technology assurance. Um, all finally, through a joint venture with the Chartered Institute of Management Accountants, we've established the Chartered Global Management Accounting designation, the CGMA, which sets a new standard for global recognition of management accounting and actually has been kind of instrumental in our competency movement here at the AICPA. Well, great. And I know I, I want to talk about that, um, but maybe first, um, uh, I'm really interested in this future of learning task force that I know the AICPA convened, I guess, three years ago now, because it was back in 2013, with this goal of developing a profession-wide um, learning vision. And I know there's a great website that goes along with that, the future of learning, AICPA.org, and we can include a link to that in the show notes. Um, but can you just tell us a little bit more about that future of learning project and, and what it's achieved and, and what it's still working to achieve? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, in 2013, which now seems really long ago, the CPA profession, and I think the learning community generally, had been experiencing this seismic shift related to the creation and delivery of continuing education. Um, I used to tell a, a group of leaders in the CPA profession that I was working with at the time, you had the luxury of 40 years of business as usual. Mm -hmm. People would sign up and attend live learning, and that is just what they did. And in 2008, when the economy took a downturn, people really changed how they engaged in learning, I think, because of economic need. But ultimately, I think it became representative of a shift of just what people need and what they valued. So anyways, we knew there was a shift and we really wanted to dive into the business professional and workplace influences that were creating that shift. And then, of course, create a vision for the future. Um, and while there was no surprise that our market had been disrupted, the question was, what should we do about it? Right. Key learning trends, I think, that emerged from 
the group's collaboration in that group was comprised beyond AICPA staff and members of state CPA society representatives. We included our regulator in the conversation. We included university professors, learning leaders at large CPA firms and in large businesses. So it really was a nice cross section of the profession. And some of the learning trends that emerged that really helped shape our recommendations were Competency is as important, if not more important, than compliance. We've been a very compliance-focused profession. Learning needs to be relevant and contextual. Learning should be collaborative, interactive, and participative. Mentoring and coaching are key ways that people like to learn. And that learning should be just in time blended and tech-enabled. So with that kind of in mind, that helped us shape our recommendations in terms of where we needed to go in the future. Hmm. Um, And then really start us on a journey of transformation. Well, that's that's really interesting. And and one question I have from kind of a a big perspective is just what it was like to convene a task force like that. I mean, I, I think that that could be of interest Potentially to you know other associations working in other professions. So any you know lessons learned about you know what made that work well, or any you know hurdles you hit that if you had a chance to do it again, you might do differently. Um, that is an awesome question. <laughs> I have actually worked in the association world for I guess this year would be twenty six years, and um, this was hands down the best. <laughs> task force that I have ever worked with. That's great. Uh, it, it was. And and we had a lot of the participants say that it was also one of their most meaningful participations as a volunteer leader, too. And I, I, I try to think about what caused that. And um, I think, in part, we had, while we had a vision of what we wanted the task force to achieve, we didn't necessarily have an end in mind. There was a lot of exploration, so we didn't know the answer when we started, which I think drives meaningful, purposeful conversation. Mm. Also, whether it was wittingly or unwittingly, (laughs) we actually engaged that group in what we were moving toward in terms of what are the learning best practices, right? Um, We experimented with gamification. We had peer-to-peer learning experiences. We brought in mentors and coaches to talk to us. We really kind of walked the walk. It just, it was a phenomenal experience. And I've sat through quite a few committee task force governing body meetings over the past 20 some years. Well, that's great. It does sound like, I mean, I think just that commitment to the fact that, you know, this really is an exploration. We really do want your input. We really don't know what you're going to come up with. I think (laughs) that can actually be a great place to start since so many committees and task force don't start there. um, Well, and so I've spent some time on that future of of learning site and there's a a poster that's up there and and it talks about um, four strategies to fuel the future of learning. And, And so those four are innovate and experiment that's one the second is to ignite a passion for learning 
the third is to make learning personal, and the fourth is to measure what matters. And I, I love at least the way all four of those um, statements sound, but I was hoping maybe you could unpack what those four phrases mean a little bit and, and talk about how they've been playing out in practice. Um, absolutely. Um, first of all, I have to say that when you get to tell your team that your expectation of them is that they innovate and experiment every day, it's a pretty, it's a pretty kind of awesome message to have to deliver to a team. So it it has really, while it has been a period of transformation and change, so there might be some bumps and bruises along the way and a few lessons learned. It really has been an incredible experience, um, both for my team involved in the development of learning. And then I think also for our, our members and customers who engage in our learning. So we truly believe that in order to innovate, you have to experiment and explore. And, and that is what we've been doing. We've had successes. We've had some things that didn't work out so well. And we've really done it across all our product lines, from our live courses to our webcasts and conferences to our on-demand self-study, even our text-based self-study we've had, we've transformed. Um, uh, part of what has helped us along the way and part of what we said in the recommendation was change doesn't have to be a big boom kind of change. Change can be small and incremental. So we have, well, literally adopted agile methodologies and really have begun to think of production of learning and creation of learning as an iterative agile process. Interesting, yeah. And that has really helped. It has dramatically increased our speed to market of our product and we think really elevated the, the whole member learning experience. So I can give some real specific examples in terms of that kind of agileness and speed to market. Our team says that they've increased their speed to market by over 35%. And that in part was realizing that the tools we use to develop e-learning, that one size doesn't fit all. And so they've actually adopted a stack of e-learning tools, development tools. So depending on what the specific need is, we match the tool to the specific need. And that, that's been very helpful as, a try, as opposed to trying to get one thing to, to serve all our needs. That's great, yeah. Um, one of the really fun things in the innovation area that the team did, um, you used to pay tens of thousands of dollars to do anything in 3D and a lot of gamification was always considered very expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, Our team has been using some avatar software that allows you to take, very inexpensive, allows you to take a photo of any person, could be you, could be me, could be one of your members, um, and turn them into a 3D animation And then they're able to use the voiceovers and and animate and lip sync that so that we now in our some of our e-learning products have learning coaches and others that speak to the member. One great example of this is we have in our not-for-profit certificate, we address ethical issues. And so we we take participants through a gamification experience where a variety of people are calling into an ethics hotline 
So you watch and listen to that avatar speak to the ethics hotline professional and then the learning experience is that the user actually selects what they think the right answer is and then the ethics hotline expert will respond to them and tell them what the actual answer is. Pretty cool. It's it's a really so different an experience than what our what initial <laughs> learning was, which was turning a page of a PDF, right, <laughs> right. So um, that that's one example of of how they've innovated and experimented. Um, another another way that we've added some interactivity um, that's really simple yet engages the learner is. Um, kind of drag and drop technologies we've been able to to execute pretty easily. So imagine if you would like a bulletin board covered in sticky notes, question pops up, and then you're supposed to pick from your sticky note options what the right answer is. Seems simple, but just again, kind of engages folks in that learning experience in a way that um, just looking at a multiple choice question on paper doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, Moving on to that next recommendation, and they're all kind of intertwined is what we've learned as well in terms of igniting a passion for learning. We come from a profession that has really been very compliance focused, get your hours, get your hours, get your hours. Um, And we're trying to shift that focus. So, in addition to adding 3D and multimedia elements to our courses to sort of enhance the experience, um, we've also really stepped up our game in terms of creating interactive scenarios um, to engage the learner, adding video clips to learning where experts will talk and share their opinions on on the topic at hand. All of those things are really um, help interest our learners in their experience. Um, Additionally, you know, not everyone's into e-learning. So one of the things we've done is we've engaged in much more blended learning where, for example, we have an internal control certificate program. It begins with e-learning, some pre-work, and then it moves into a classroom workshop situation where as teams, people in the classroom work through case studies and um, have other great experiences with experts. And then when it's over, the attendees actually take a comprehensive competency-based exam. And I think the idea of trying to move to a competency-based exam is key. A lot of exams in the past have all been, do you know these facts, right? And it's not so much just what you know, it's what you can do with what you know. So we really are trying to focus on the application of the knowledge. And that, to me, makes a big difference, not just as an educator, but as an employer, I don't, doesn't matter to me what somebody knows. It matters to me what they do, right? So it's been very valuable. And I think one of the things that helps ignite that passion for learning is our customers can really see how the learning that they're engaging in actually makes a difference when they go back to the workplace. Great. 
Um, another thing that we've done real quick is just it tried to use more social learning channels um, so that groups can either through Twitter or LinkedIn discussions or other discussions, people can discuss and participate in conversations about the area in which they're learning. Um, well, and then we did not leave the old form of, of learning untouched. Our classroom learning also went through a transformation that was both a transformation of the materials and a transformation of our instructors. Mm. Uh, and that, that was actually key. You can create the greatest learning, but if you have people who are accustomed to just lecturing, um, that's not going to work in the classroom. So we really have been trying to move our instructors from lecturers to what we, we like to call learning facilitators. Great. Um, and, and I hope you're going to maybe t say a little bit about how you've been doing that. Are you doing direct training with them or providing yes. materials or both? All of the above. So it started with, we start to look at our materials and say, how can we have more interaction here? And our, actually our regulator is moving to a place that says, you must have interaction in every hour of instruction. So what we started to do was break up our content to say, what could be an activity? What could be a discussion topic? What, so we, we come up with a multitude of interaction opportunities throughout our courses. And then what that provides, it provides the instructor an opportunity to engage with their classroom in a way that's most comfortable for them or most comfortable for the participants in the class. And so to kind of move our instructors where they need to be, we both conduct live learning, um, which is great because you can role play and, you know, they can, they can talk amongst each other in terms of what works, would you try? what worked, what didn't work. Um, we've also done some online sessions to help facilitate. And then we also make those available as recordings for those folks that can't attend live. Um, and then we go out to our customer base and say, and watch for feedback to see how that's working. And sometimes it works great. And where it doesn't work so well, we'll go back to the instructor and engage in some coaching to try to get them to where they need to be. And in some instances, you have instructors who say, no, I'd just like to lecture. So just give me those opportunities. And <laughs> you <Okay>. do that. <laughs> um, along those same lines to just kind of help facilitate that positive classroom experience, we've enhanced both our printed versions of books and our eBooks just to make them more searchable and um, for the ebooks that you know the links are live and they become a quite a reference tool but since we do span a wide array of generations in our membership base we have found that you need to train people how to use ebooks that's not intuitive for all of your customers so that that was important for us too um, and then our visuals that we use in the classroom historically were very text heavy and um, again because we're looking for engagement not people reading slides 
we've implemented much more kind of PowerPoint best practices. So the focus is more on the discussion in the classroom and not what's on the slides. Making learning personal. This is huge. I used to teach elementary school uh. and it was, it was a big deal to, when they talk about like kids that were learning how to read or having trouble learning how to read, how could you best reach them? Um, and one of the like simple, but so often not done keys was finding something that interests them to read. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I think that kind of, that applies really here too. And that's, that's where we've gone from always thinking about our learning in an eight hour or multiple of eight hour chunk to really trying to make it more digestible. So if all eight hours of content aren't important to you, can we, can we laser focus you in on that content that you care about and let you spend your time there? So we, we've, we're doing a lot of that kind of chunking and making learning more digestible. Um, we also, we find that using a case study approach to much of our learning also helps with that kind of personalization of the learning. What If this were my situation, what would I do? How would I respond to that? We have a um, interactive online program and also a live program and also a blended program related to preparation for taking the CGMA exam, which is a case study-based exam. So that's just full of scenario after scenario where the learner gets to opine on how they would respond. And we've found that to be a really positive experience. Um, what is amazing, but not necessarily always easily executable, is with adult learners, having them respond to a case study and then actually giving them feedback from an expert on their response. I kind of liken it to when you used to have papers graded, right? But that sort of stops once you leave college and you engage in continuing education. And so we've we've brought it back. Great. <laughs> and, uh, and we actually find that learners respond to it. Obviously, you can't do that with everything, but we find it really, really valuable. Um, some of the other ways that we've personalized learning is through crowdsourcing at live events like our conferences. We have an app that we use at our conference um, that we're, helps us. We do live polling and crowdsourcing. So we can poll, our speakers can poll to find out what does the audience know or want to know. Um, so that they can tailor their presentations. The app has the capability for the group to vote questions up in the Q&A section. So those questions are of the most interest to the most people in the room. Those are the questions that get answered first. It's, it's really positive. Um, and then we've engaged that same kind of experience in our virtual classroom environment, think webcast, where we have, we don't, we do some live streaming, like our conferences we live stream, but we'll have a facilitator online asking questions and engaging the online audience. And then our standard kind of course webcasts, we actually pre-record 
so that the expert can spend much more of the classroom time engaging in the questions that the online users have. And again, people get that sense of, oh, hey, I got my specific question answered and this is really meaningful and useful for me. Great. Um, I'll share the link to this later, but one of the one of the other ways that I wanted to share that we've personalized learning and really brought the idea of competency to the forefront is we launched with our partner SEMA the competency and learning website exactly a year ago yesterday. Oh wow! <laughs> Happy anniversary! <laughs> Thank you. And um, right now it has. I think it has about six of our technical areas on there, and soon it will have all the technical areas. By the summer, it will have all the technical areas that serve the accounting profession. But um, the site is actually designed for learners to customize their learning experience and assess their competence. Um, It includes both self-assessments and knowledge checks, going back to that idea of, um, do you know what you think you know? Mm. And then you apply it. We have assessments built in that allow users to gauge that. And then depending on how they respond or the accuracy to which they respond, they're given customized um, learning opportunities to follow. And they're both resources that are free, like articles and videos, um, as well as, hey, maybe you want to go attend this conference. So it's it's a really valuable tool. I was just at our board meeting and our um, leaders, volunteer leaders in the employee benefit plan audit area we're talking about the site and how that they've found that site extraordinarily valuable for kind of self-assessment, but also within their firms to help engage in professional development conversations with their employees. So it's really exciting. Um, Great, and then I, I think maybe if you could talk a little bit about that measure, what matters, because I think that is really of interest, well, at least to me personally, I think that idea of, you know, how, how do you how do you know the impact of what you're doing or, you know, what is it that you measure? Um, that I would yeah. love to hear what you have to say around that one. Okay. This is, like, when I think of all we've accomplished on those first three recommendations, crazy proud and still really proud of the me- what we've done in Measure What Matters, but I will tell you, it is it is a journey. Where they say it's a marathon, not a <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, you have regulators involved, and you have, frankly, tradition involved. Mm. Um, so that recommendation really focused on, um, first of all, establishing a competency framework for the profession. Um, we didn't, while competency has always been threaded throughout the CPA profession standards, it's even written into all the regulatory language around continuing education. We didn't have 
sort of a single definition of what do we consider competent. So one of the first things we did on this marathon journey and, and that we've completed is we actually developed a competency framework for the profession. We started with the CGMA framework, so for management accounting in collaboration with SEMA, um, because interesting, the rest of the world seems to be far more evolved talking about competency, <laughs> value on competency than we are in the U.S. Um, but that competency framework, we, we bucket into four overall buckets of technical competencies, people competencies, leadership competencies, and business acumen competencies. And then we break down within those buckets. So like in the technical competency bucket, we have um, you know, 12 different main technical areas within which CPAs practice. Um, and then the further breakdown across all the competencies are we look at them in terms of foundational competencies, intermediate competencies, advanced competencies, and expert competencies. Um, and we try to demonstrate how those build on each other. I tell people that if you actually looked at the competency framework, it's kind of like it's kind of like that whole making sausage thing. <laughs> right. Everyone wants to actually see the inside. <laughs> they just want to see the end result. And I'd say our competency and learning website is the end result that make it meaningful for how you engage with that. But um, it's really helpful. And, and we actually very purposefully chose to focus the competency framework by competency level mm. as opposed to by position because we're kind of finding that one size doesn't fit all in terms of positions anymore. Career paths are not, um, they used to talk about the career ladder and when we were doing the future of learning task force, we said, yeah, there's not really a ladder anymore. <laughs> Let's either call it a jungle gym or a <laughs> Right. <laughs> Absolutely. There's no direct path, so to assume that every CEO, CFO, controller has the same set of competencies, probably not right. So anyways, so that's, that's the focus of that. And that, that's been really helpful, and we've actually tried to embed then the competency framework and, and being very purposeful, again, about what competencies are we developing when we develop learning Um into everything we do and and that in and of itself has been transformative in terms of how we create our learning um, because I think it's really made the team much more purposeful and thoughtful about how they develop learning and what the learning they're trying to develop is supposed to achieve um, like really just moving us away from I'm going to shove a bunch of facts at you I want I want to really think about what do I want you to be able to do when you're done with this learning experience. So that's been a real positive movement. Um, another part of the measure what matters was to move away from to move to more competency-based compliance. Um, right now, as a CPA, you have to have 120 hours of continuing education every three years. 
some states it's a one-year requirement some states it's a two but it all kind of works out to 120 hours every every three years and um well i don't think we haven't moved the needle as far as we want to um we have started to move that needle the hours base requirement is still in place um it's hard to to ask a regulator to stop counting things. They, <laughs> <laughs> they like that very objective, right. quantifiable thing. Right, we can count those hours. That's easy. Yeah. yeah. And um, I, I've had some interesting, because I've been involved in many, many discussions over the past couple of years on this topic, and, and even said to somebody, but does that really make a better professional? And the individual said back to me, Oh, no, absolutely not. Just that they took a number of hours of continuing education doesn't. But we can measure that. <laughs> so it's a journey. It's a journey. It's, it's a marathon. Um, but what we have been able to do, where we have been able to shift the needle, is we have introduced, and we actually have an exposure draft for our CPE standards out now, we've we've introduced different increments of time measurement. We actually have a provision in the new CPE standards for nano learning, which would be a 10 minute increment of time. Um, all other kind of learning for the CPA profession, almost, has always been measured in hour increments. And we've added some flexibility to that as well. So, um, Actually, it gets pretty complicated pretty fast, but the first, the first, you have to start with an hour of learning, but then you can award uh, credit in either one-fifth of an hour, so 10-minute increments, or a half-hour increment. And that, that just provides a level of flexibility that we didn't have before, and you don't have to worry about people filling time to get to the next CPE increment. Right. Yeah, we've also, um, those same CPE standards introduced the concept of blended learning, which previously blended learning experiences would not necessarily count for CPE. So there would be a lot of learning um, in a blended program that might not count. So now we can have situations where people do work outside of a classroom in a classroom and then maybe outside of the classroom again. And instead of only counting the classroom time, we can count the whole learning experience. So that that's real positive for us. And then I'd say the other um, positive movement that we've made in that area is to, um, to require that there be interactivity and long in um, live programming. And that's not necessarily part of that measurability, but it's part of making learning more purposeful and meaningful. So not quite um, a full output-based <laughs> program, but we've, we've moved this is a 120, 123-year-old profession. Um, it's gonna take a little time to shift how we think about uh, compliance well and I think you said earlier yourself but this this idea that change doesn't have to be big boom but can be incremental and yeah so you're taking steps and making progress which is great yeah um. and so you know we're coming to the end of our time here and 
what I wanted to ask you is because obviously you're very thoughtful at the AICPA about how um, others approach their um, learning and their um, continuing education. So I just want to ask you how you approach your own personal lifelong learning. How do you make sure that you're continuing to learn and grow your knowledge and skills? That's a great question. Um, As I mentioned before, I used to be a classroom teacher. I think I was in grad school, part-time, full-time for about two years to be in order to become a classroom teacher. And I think the most meaningful part of that two-year education were four words that my master teacher, Tommy Sellers, uttered, which were, education for what purpose? Hmm. And that actually has driven me, not just as an educator, but when it comes to my own lifelong learning, Um, And while some of my lifelong learning experiences, I may choose classroom-based, more likely what I prefer, mentoring and coaching, because I know mentoring and coaching sound like they're one-way relationships, but they're really two-way relationships. Um, Peer-to-peer learning is huge for me. On-the-job experience cannot, it, it is, I just was talking to a young woman who's a junior in college who's who's spending her junior year at the London School of Economics and she was talking asking me about my thoughts about classroom learning versus um, on-the-job experience and I said I'd hire that person that had the -the on-the-job experience every day over the person that just had a a set of degrees. Um, I love to read and then the other the other bit and this can be done many ways is really observation and then reflection. I think kind of reflecting on experiences, whether that's watching a video, watching a dynamic in a um, classroom or something else, I think is really important. But in a nutshell, my learning has to be practical, application-based, and while I love to hear about theory, it can't be the focus. I want to catch a theory, make it real, and then see what happens. Great. Yeah. And I love your emphasis on the making time for reflection as well as sort of getting the inputs. You got to have the time to reflect on it and then apply it. And and so just to wrap up, um, what are the best places for people to find out more about the AICPA or or any of these other things we've talked about or to connect with with you? Oh, that's great. Thanks for offering that. I have... um, I'll give you three websites real quick. One would be futureoflearning.aicpa.org, which you mentioned earlier. Um, Also would suggest checking out our competency and learning website that is at competency.aicpa.org. And probably the best way to reach me would be through Twitter. And I'm um, at Claire, C-L-A-R underscore Rosso, R-O-S-S-O. Well, great. Thank you so much, Claire, for taking time to talk today. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. So that's a wrap for our interview with Claire Rosso of AICPA. 
as we're heading out here, wanted to mention again one more time briefly the Learning Technology Design or LTD event that we have going on May 18th and 19th in Arlington. We'd love to see you there. You can find out more at ltd.leadinglearning.com. And also, once again, thanks to Web Courseworks for being a sponsor of Leading Learning Webinars and by extension of this podcast episode. You can find out more about Web Courseworks at webcourseworks.com. To get show notes for this episode, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 24. And while you're there, you'll see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're enjoying what you're hearing, if you're getting value out of the podcast, we would be grateful if you would subscribe. We'd also be grateful if you'd take a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. We've made that as easy as possible. All you have to do is go to leadinglearning.com forward slash iTunes. That will get you to the right place. And if you just uh, give us some stars, preferably five, uh, along with a brief review, uh, we would really appreciate it. And also consider telling others about the podcast. You can send out a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share. Or if tweeting isn't your thing, you can grab the text that you find at that URL and you can cut and paste it into your social network or preference or feel free to spread the word about the podcast in your own words. So thanks again and we'll see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast. <music>